So um, today we're actually going to be in the book of John, and we're going to see Jesus through the eyes of really one of his closest friends, which is John. In fact, John keeps referring to himself when he writes as the guy, like the beloved, the one that Jesus loves the most, which if you're writing the story, you can write that down, right? So uh, what John saw in the life of Jesus, though, really transformed him as a person, and it shows. So just to be clear, in case you don't know, we're not talking about John the Baptist. We're talking about a different John, John the Apostle. And if you read John's writings, he cannot stop talking about the love of Jesus. Like it's, it's, he just, you know, and of course you have John, and then you have the sequel, and then you have the sequel to the sequel, and then you have the sequel to his way, and he just keeps writing about how, uh, how much love that he has for Jesus and how much love Jesus has for us. And so that tells me that seeing the love of Jesus changes everything, at least it should for us. And so that's what we're gonna be talking about today. Uh, John's story about the life of Jesus is different than any of the other accounts. We have Matthew, we have Mark, and we have Luke, and then we have John. And John is different because he sort of paints a picture with words. He's very poetic in the way that he expresses uh, some of these things. And then he uses all sorts of contrasting themes like light and dark. And so if you're into poetry, uh, you're gonna dig John's gospel. But throughout his gospel, there's this pattern that starts to form. We see uh, people encounter Jesus, right? And he does something amazing. Like he will perform a miracle or some uh, sort of sign, right? And they're like, whoa, that's amazing. But then immediately following that, almost every time there's like a misunderstanding or someone in the story gets angry about what they've just seen. And so like every one of us today, they are forced in those moments to make a choice. And the choice is this, who is Jesus? Like, who is this guy? Is he the Messiah? Is he a charlatan? We talked about some of these things last week. So each of us come to this point in our lives. And for you today, this may be the first time that you've come face to face with this choice. But the choice is this, who is Jesus? Who is he going to be to me and in my life? Because we're gonna talk about what the truth is and who he actually is, but we have to make a choice for ourselves. And so every story in John's gospel is a part of this larger reason that he's writing. And so most of the guys that are writing, uh, they put that right up front. They let you know at the very beginning, you know, this is why I wrote the gospel of Matthew and that kind of thing. But John doesn't do that because John's a rule breaker. What John likes to do is he puts it at the end, 2031, almost the very end of his book, he says, but these are written. Everything that I just wrote about Jesus, everything that you just read, here's why. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, right? The King, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John waits almost until the end of this narrative before he finally unveils this motivating factor for why he's telling us this. This purpose of bringing us the good news about Jesus and the fact that Jesus came to bring us life. And so John's message is that, listen, Jesus, he's God made flesh. He's God's word alive and he can change your life forever if you'll just trust in him. And so the people that John was writing to at the time would have been thinking about this in the context of life, uh, living under the tense times of Roman oppression, right? Uh, Life for people that were working hard and struggling to survive, Uh, people that didn't have much. Life for people who had given up hope that the Messiah would ever come, right? I mean, we can look back at the story and we can see all these things unfolding, but think about where they were in the story. People who'd given up hope, they'd been hearing forever 
that Messiah was going to come. And then they go into captivity and all these things happen and they'd abandoned that hope. And then they come back and they reestablish their city and then the Romans come in, right? Babylonians, Romans, all these different things are happening, all these powers that are fighting and they have zero control over the situation. So they'd given up hope. But today what we're going to do is we're going to actually look at the stories of two different women. Two different women in John's gospel uh, that encountered Jesus and how his uh, love brought them back to life. And so we're going to pick up the first story. It's actually in John chapter 4. And to set this up, Jesus withdrew to Galilee. Uh, He had angered some of the religious elite, and uh, he decided to get out of town. And so uh, they they saw Jesus as this threat to their power, right? And so Jesus left. And I want to show you, just to give you an idea of what we're talking about here. So we have Jerusalem down here, and there's a couple different routes that you can take. Most Jewish people would avoid the route in the middle because that takes you right through Samaria, And we're going to talk about why that's a big deal. Uh, Most of the time they would go uh, out here on on the west or out to the east. They would go either of those directions just to avoid walking through that territory um, along the Mediterranean Sea or the east path through Perea where it's much safer. Most of us have heard of, how many of you have heard of the Samaritans, right? Not like the people that help you when you're camping and you lose a wheel or something, right? Not the Good Sam Club. I'm talking about Samaritan in the Bible. The Good Samaritan, right? We've heard that story. The whole moral of the story being that this guy does the right thing, he does the good thing. Well, think about the title of that story, The Good Samaritan. Why would you designate someone's good? Right, well, maybe. Or part of the deal is that you're signaling out someone that did something different than the rest of the group normally would, right? Most of us have heard of the Samaritans, namely that story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, and the story uses this long-standing hostility that the Jews and the Samaritans had for each other, right? To establish something, basically a moral story. Jesus uses that. And so here's why. The Samaritans had turned their backs on the Jewish uh, brothers, their Jewish brothers and sisters in the south, uh, when they intermarried with the Assyrians who had come in, and they had turned to idolatry, and they had incorporated a lot of that stuff into their religion. Now, they were also descendants of Jacob, just like the Jewish people were, but they turned to idolatry, and we know God does not look upon that favorably. They left the ways, the things that God had established. They left those things. And the Samaritans also believed that they actually held the true place of worship versus it being in Jerusalem. So it wasn't uncommon if you were to try and cut across that territory for you to be attacked, for you to be robbed, all those kinds of things, which is why the story of the Good Samaritan is the positive example in that. And so after hiking all morning, Jesus is hot and he's exhausted. Uh, And so they're cutting through here and he stops at this well on the edge of town so that he can rest. And the disciples are like, okay, well, if you're going to do that, uh, they're assuming, of course, the disciples, we're not going to stay in the city. We're not going to hang out here. So we're going to go into this town and get some provisions and then uh, we'll continue on our journey, right? So he stops at this, actually this well, it was believed to have been dug by Jacob. Again, part of the story here in just a second. So they assume they wouldn't stay and a woman arrives at the well to draw water. And this may not seem like that odd of a thing to happen, but it's hot, it's midday. That's generally not a time that you would stop to draw water. She arrives, she sees Jesus hanging out, resting by the well, uh, and her eyes begin to be opened gradually in this story to who Jesus is. And so it starts with this. Jesus says to her, give me a drink. She was surprised by this request for a number of reasons. Number one, it was unusual for a woman to visit the well alone. 
because of all kinds of dangerous things, animals, people, that kind of deal. But the fact that she was there alone also says something to us, that that she may have been considered somewhat of a social outcast. There was something about her uh, that she didn't have friends or she didn't have people that would go with her, not to mention the time she was choosing to go. It could be that she was avoiding people. So Jesus says, hey, I need a drink. And you have this strange man, right, alone with this strange woman. That would have been reason enough to avoid conversation without all the other things I just told you in this time and in this place. Context is very important to these stories. But engaging a Samaritan in friendly conversation definitely crossed social boundaries. Even if you didn't have anything against them, you certainly weren't going to interface with them or talk with them as people. And so the woman says, of course, here's a response. Well, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It says there in parentheses probably in your Bible. That's John 4, 9. So she sees Jesus at this moment as just a Jew, someone who ought to be hostile to her. So Jesus answers, and it's a pretty cool answer. He says, if you could see who I really am and the opportunity that God has given you, you'd be asking me, and I would have given you living water, it says with exclamation point, and I would have been giving you living water, right? Not angry, he's just excited, right? Right? Yes? You with me? Good. Okay, cool. Are you guys excited? Awesome. Palm Sunday, right? Palm Sunday, am I right? That it was very enthusiastic. Let's try that again, okay? Palm Sunday, am I right? Okay, good, good, good. You are with me. That's good. So what Jesus is doing here is he's kind of alluding to something that she kind of gets, but she kind of doesn't. He's like, listen, uh, the water that we're talking about is different than what you're expecting. It's actually this metaphor for spiritual cleansing, something that we would call baptism, actually was a regular part of ritual cleansing all the time for the Jewish people. And so Jesus is alluding to that, and he's saying, listen, my teaching and the Holy Spirit that I can give you can meet this need. Jesus is offering her life. But this woman, she's not quite there yet, so she doesn't get it. And she's like, okay, well, where's your bucket? You don't have anything to draw water with. Where do you get this water? But she also understands that there's more going on, right? There's a hint to the story. And so she's like, something supernatural is going on here. So she responds in a supernatural way. She refers to their shared forefather, Jacob, who dug that well. She says, you are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? The one who gave us this well and drank from it along with his sons and his livestock. Let's just stop for a second and think about that. People and livestock drinking out of the same water. Interesting. Anyway, so that's how her response is. And here's what Jesus says, verse 13 of chapter four. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So her vision is starting to get clearer of who Jesus is because now she's considering if Jesus is greater than Jacob who would have been a great patriarch in her mind. So she replies, and I'm gonna read into this a little bit, but I think it may have been a little sarcastic, right? Well, hand it over then, right? Not being thirsty would save me a lot of time and effort coming back and forth from this well. That would actually help me get a lot of stuff done. So I would like that, please. So at this point, Jesus tells her to call her husband, right? He's like, okay, well, call your husband. Let's have a conversation about this. And so that he can speak to them. And the woman responds briskly that she has no husband. And I believe she's trying to avoid the subject. At this point, Jesus reads her mail, so to speak. And if you don't know what that means, like if someone tells you something about yourself empowered by the spirit, like they tell you something that only God could know, that's called reading your mail. 
It means like they opened the letter and read it and then put it back in the envelope and sealed it, except they didn't do that. It's the power of the supernatural. So he reads our mail, and here's what he says, verse 17. You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. So the woman was blind, I believe, to the depth of her own need in this moment. And Jesus totally calls it out. And I don't think in a mean or an angry way. I think it's very matter-of-factly. He knew that her spiritual thirst was the thing that needed to be addressed. It wasn't the physical need, although she may have been thirsty and needed water for the day. But he's like, no, there's a bigger deal here. The bigger deal is the condition of your spirit and of your heart. And so some other things we need to know is that Jewish teaching disapproved of a woman actually having more than three husbands. And that the idea of a common law husband didn't have really any religious support uh, in that day. And so Jesus commends her honesty, but he gently reveals the truth. And I've heard this preached in very sarcastic ways, and I don't think that that's what's happening. I think Jesus is just speaking the truth in this moment. So then her vision expands, of course, because she's like, oh, sir, I can see that you are a prophet, right? Which you probably would do too if someone told you something about yourself like that. Being in the presence of this true prophet from God was actually a bit of an awkward situation for her if you think about it. Because if he were a true prophet, and he were from God, and he were also Jewish, well... That's going to be awkward given where their two people lived and the whole situation going on. So her mind immediately turns to that separation, the separation with the Jews that had defined her people. And so she responds in verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem, there's the place where people ought to worship. So what's she asking, right? We got to read between the lines a little bit here. What's she asking Jesus? She's asking him, okay, well then who are the real people of God? You seem to know some things. So tell me, I want to know what you have to say. Who are the real people of God? Now that I have a prophet here, I'm going to get my money's worth. So I need you to answer this question for me. Who's right? Is it the Jewish people or is it the Samaritans? And so Jesus answers our question and quite directly too. He says, you don't even know what you worship, but we do for salvation is from the Jews. And let me just say that that is still true. That's one of those things I think sometimes we just blow by that, but that's still the truth. We as Christian people, we're, we are grafted into what God is doing through his people. And so that is an honor and it's something that I believe that we should always be mindful of and always uh, be grateful for. And so this is really cool. John 4, verse 23. Jesus says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. That's fantastic. What in the world does it mean, right? Which she may have been thinking that too. God will, wait a second, God desires people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. So he's saying, listen, the question isn't where you're worshiping. The question isn't whether you're Jewish or you're Samaritan in this moment. It's none of those things. God offers each and every one of us this gift of new life and the condition of the heart and our attitude of our response in worship are the things that are important. That's what he's trying to tell us. Like, listen, mountain here, mountain there. We don't need to debate those things. What, what God offers you, he's offering you now. He offers to everyone. To worship God in spirit is to worship him as one spiritually reborn from above or born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus, right? Uh, to worship God in truth is to humble ourselves and worship according to the truth of his revelation, his word, the way that he teaches us to worship him. And so 
That certainly could change some things for her, could hopefully change things for all of us, right? But Jesus says basically, listen, this time is coming and God's gonna pour it out. He's gonna dump out his spirit on all flesh, not like on one person or on one group of people. He's going to dump his spirit out on all flesh. And that's not a New Testament concept, by the way. That goes all the way back. This has always been God's intention. Everyone will worship the Lord in both spirit and truth because they will all know him. But you don't have to wait until then to begin worshiping the Lord in both spirit and truth. So we get this sense from the woman that this isn't the, is this not the answer that she had expected or maybe wanted? So she kind of tries to shut the awkward conversation down by saying, well, I know Messiah is coming and when that one comes, he will tell us everything, right? We've all done that before. You get into the awkward conversation, you try to say the thing that's gonna make it end so that you can go on about your business. So in other words, never mind, I'll ask the Messiah when he gets here. And so Jesus makes it clear by the way, anyone that tells you Jesus never says that he's the Messiah in scripture, they missed this one. John 4, 26, I who speak to you am he. It doesn't get any clearer. It's me. Hello, right? That's what he's saying. Listen, this Messiah that you're speaking of, you can ask me now because here I am. It's on. And her eyes are opened and she finally sees Jesus for who he is, the Messiah who brings all of these things into reality. And so this encounter, this moment, it may seem like a weird conversation to us, but something about Jesus and his love transforms this woman. And it's like this, boom, this thing happens and she runs into town. She's like, come see this dude that told me about everything that I've ever done, which seems like the kind of thing that you wouldn't want to talk about. Could it be that he is the Messiah? Come and see. I want to hear all the stuff that you did. No, that's not what she's saying, right? But she is saying, like, this is amazing. You have to meet this man. Could he be the one that we've all been waiting for? So in the moment, we see this reality of God's kingdom expanding to include anyone who worships in spirit and in truth. And so an important lesson for us here, guys, is there are no boundaries when it comes to the love of God. There are no boundaries Salvation is for everyone. He can save anyone that would humbly turn their hearts to him. He is faithful to offer his grace and love. Where you come from, what you've done, none of that matters when you see Jesus. And so he is this expected one. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom to the poor, the afflicted and the downtrodden and freedom to the captives, it says in Isaiah 61. And this idea right here actually becomes even more powerful in our second story when Jesus ends up in another awkward situation later in John's gospel. So Jesus is in Jerusalem, right? And he's there for Sukkot, which is also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. And what that was is it retold the story of Israel's wandering in the wilderness, you know, where they were led by the pillar of cloud during the day and the pillar of fire at night. It's, it's really pretty cool and how God provided water for them in the desert. And so the city, Jerusalem, it would swell with pilgrims. People would be everywhere for this. These festivals were a very big deal. Some were required to be at and some were not but it was an excuse to like leave the farm and have a party and so people would do that they would all rush into Jerusalem and there would be people all over the place and so at the beginning of John uh, chapter 8 we find Jesus and he is in uh, the temple and he's teaching 
And he's in one of the, uh, the outer courts. I think he's in the court of women, which was pretty common right then. It would be a custom. When there were more people in town, many of the teachers would move out to where everybody could come and they could hear them. And so they would do that. They'd be out in the court of women, easily accessible, just kind of hanging out and teaching, a very kind of an informal Bible study type of situation. So Jesus is out there and he's teaching. And, and, uh, and this is early in the morning, it says, after he'd camped at the Mount of Olives uh, that night, which is actually part of Sukkot too. So all of a sudden, some of the religious teachers come rushing in and they interrupt his Bible study. How rude, right? It was rude. They bring this woman into the middle of his Torah study and they throw her at his feet. And in John chapter eight, verse four, it says, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us, Moses, right? He commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And of course, John lets us in on a secret here, although it's not much of a secret. They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. That's my narrator voice. So we need to know a few things about Sukkot in order to have a proper understanding of what had happened here. The festival of Sukkot was an all-out seven-day party with wine and all-night dance marathons. It was a rave before raves existed. Okay, guys? Some of you don't know what a rave is. I'm, I'm, ask your kids. Anyway, so the deal is this, right? People would come into town, and as part of uh, honoring and celebrating Sukkot, they would build these little lean-tos, and they would actually sleep outside under the stars. And part of the idea was, again, identifying with those travels in the wilderness where they didn't have homes to rest their heads. And so it's actually kind of fun, especially if you're a kid, because you've got all of these little tents, everybody's sleeping outside, and, and it's just fun, right? But if you think about it, a city full of way more people with way more wine and way more dancing dancing that lasted all night and little shacks all over the city. Do the math, okay? This creates a recipe for a modesty to say it politely, okay? It's also the reason that they separated the women from the men during the all-night dancing because things happen, right? So, now back to what's going on here. This verse actually tells us a lot more than we might know. Uh, when they tell us that in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, that actually gives us a clue about this woman because there were different thing, things prescribed for different uh, ages and situations for adultery. I'm not sure if you knew that or not, and I won't go into all of them, but these leaders mentioned stoning her specifically. So we gather from the story that she's actually an unmarried woman. She's probably betrothed to someone and she's most likely a teenage girl. So imagine that. Your teenage daughter or granddaughter a friend thrown in the midst of all these people. Another thing that we have to consider is that the Torah required both guilty parties to be punished. Where's the guy? It takes two to tango, right? The man is nowhere to be found, which seems very suspicious. And here's the deal. No matter how Jesus chooses to answer, he's trapped. There's not a good answer for this, guys. There isn't. Because if he says, you know what? That's what the Torah says. Go ahead and do it. Put her to death. Well, 
They could then accuse him before the Romans because at that point, the Romans were not allowing the Jews to execute people or carry out capital punishment. They were restricted. And so they could go to the Romans and say, hey, this guy is advocating killing people. We think that you should do something about that. On the other hand, if you said, you know, guys, line up. Just show some love. Let her go. Well, then they could very easily say, he teaches against the Torah because this is what the Torah says. So they question him. They're like, so what do you say? And again, I want to remind you guys that for Jesus, these matters are about the heart. And of course, Jesus is brilliant. I wish I had like a tiny percentage, teeny tiny percentage of how brilliant he was. This is masterful. He not only evades their trap, but he actually turns it on them. And he does all of this, guys, while upholding the Torah. He doesn't break any Torah law in doing this. Check this out. Um, history shows, by the way, sometimes that uh, contrary to our view, let me, let me try and explain this. So we have this view, I think, sometimes, at least growing up, I did, that the law, especially when it comes to Torah law, um, that it was bloodthirsty, that they were just killing people left and right, they were taking people out, that any excuse that they had to take somebody out, that they were doing it. But the truth of the matter shows, if you look at history and you look at the ruling group, the Sanhedrin, they believed, of course, that God's strict word was important. But they also believed that it had to be moderated by God's love and mercy whenever possible. And here's the reason. Like, after all, God, I mean, we have jacked up a whole lot, guys. And God has had a whole lot of love and mercy for us, right? They were well aware of this. And so uh, their courts would exercise mercy any time possible. And so for that reason, they normally tried to avoid using the death sentence. In fact, in the Mishnah, which is this written commentary on the Torah, it says that a Sanhedrin that executed one person in the course of seven years was considered to be murderous, okay? This is in their written commentary, But at the same time, they couldn't just subjectively set aside rules and those kinds of things just because they felt pity for the accused. So instead, being good lawyers, they sought loopholes, legal loopholes. That's why we hear the scribes mentioned so much because they were the guys that, well, let me look that up. Actually, right here it says in the Mishnah, right? Those are the guys. That's what the scribes, their role was, okay? And so uh, they were good lawyers. They sought these legal loopholes. And the Torah is very specific in that every allegation, if somebody accuses you of something, you have to have credible eyewitnesses. And you have to have two of them. But in the absence of credible eyewitnesses, the court had to drop the case. Even if the crime seemed obvious, they had to drop the case. And so oftentimes the court would just disqualify the witnesses before the trial even ever started. And just so you know, if you're going to be a qualified witness in this court, you have to have led a life of integrity. There can be no question in your integrity, in your uh, moral fiber. Uh, You had to have a clean mind and conscience, it says. And so even if the case did go to court, the judges would use this strong cross-examination, which is a lot of what we see actually when Jesus interfaces with some of these leaders. They would go through and they would try to disqualify the witness because preserving life was of utmost importance to the sages. But here's the deal. These guys, the guys that brought this lady in, that was not their heart. These men weren't trying to get to the heart of the matter at all. They knew the rules. They knew the judgment. And their sole purpose, guys, was to entrap Jesus without consideration or compassion for the woman that they brought before him. And that's the part of the story that we do know. Even the brutal manner in which they interrupted his teaching 
and pushed this woman into the midst of the crowd. Their exploitation of her shame was no better than what she'd done, if you think about it. The way they were exploiting this woman for their purposes was no better than what she'd done. And so, back to our story. They're pressing Jesus for an answer, right? And, and it's almost like they're not letting him think, like when you read the scripture, it's like, and so they kept pressing him for an answer. And so, he bends down to the ground, and he starts writing in the dirt. This is pre-etch-a-sketch, right? So, it's down here. He, he bends down, he's writing in the dirt. And listen, many people have speculated about what he, he wrote there. And there's lots of really cool things that you can read that'll blow your mind that he could have been writing. But the truth of the matter is scripture does not tell us. And frankly, I think what it does say is actually way more compelling than what he could have written. So in the face of these leaders that are demanding an answer, maybe even shouting at him, right? We don't know. And the pressure of what could truly be this life or death situation for this young woman. I mean, he was deciding her fate. Jesus takes his time and considers his response. And if you don't hear anything else that I say today, that's an important lesson, right? Because we come to these moments in our lives too where we're faced with something. Someone wants an answer or they're like getting on our every nerve and we want to lash out, we want to respond in hate. Maybe we should crouch down and sketch something on the ground for a moment take a deep breath and consider our response. So Jesus takes his time. And here's what he does. Rather than attempt to defend this woman who was guilty, by the way, or bend the Torah, which does not bend, Jesus disqualified the witnesses. Check this out. Verse seven in John eight. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. One sentence. Another thing we need to know, according to the Torah, eyewitnesses testifying in a capital case had to be the ones to execute the judgment. Did you know that? So if you went to court and it was a life or death situation, you were testifying against someone, you didn't just testify, you were the first person to start throwing rocks. So Jesus simply challenges them to do so. Guys, if you have a clear conscience and you're righteous, then fulfill your duty. Go ahead. It's brilliant. Jesus' words cut to the hearts and to the consciences of each man that was standing there. And I imagine how angry that they were leading up to that and then how much angrier they were when it went down. But the truth is, none of them wanted to be the executioner especially under the weight of his own sins. And so in dramatic fashion, one by one, they left the scene. Of course, the older ones were wiser. 
they were probably way more aware of all the mistakes that they'd made. So they start dropping their rocks first. It's a shout out to you, more mature people in the room. I'm gaining on you, by the way. Not in wisdom, just in maturity. Not that kind of maturity, age maturity. Just want to be clear. So one by one, the older ones start to drop the rocks and walk away. And then, of course, the younger, more hot-headed, rash men like they were like, oh, let's get this on. Come on, where are you guys going? Where are you guys going? Eventually, they get the message, start to think about it, and they drop their rocks as well. Until Jesus is left alone with this woman standing before him. Without witnesses, there can't be a trial. And the Torah required that the woman go free. And so Yeshua asks her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And I love that about Jesus because he gets that mistakes have been made, right? He knows that things have happened. While these other men were objectifying this woman and they saw her as this means to an end to entrap Jesus, he saw something different in her. Another thing I want you to notice is this woman doesn't end up at the feet of Jesus on her own choice at all, right? She's thrown at his feet in this state of helplessness, in need of grace and mercy. And she's completely exposed without any hope to stand on. And Jesus expresses compassion to her even though he knows the truth of her sin. And I think that's a lesson for us as well. This woman, she looks at the religious leaders in this moment and she sees death and hopelessness. She sees judgment and people distancing themselves from her. But when she looks to Jesus, she sees life and hope for the future and forgiveness and this invitation to draw closer. Jesus reveals in this moment too that the religious leaders are also without hope and exposed. Both of these women we've talked about who meet Jesus are guilty. They're guilty of the same sin, but both of these women have their lives completely altered when they see Jesus, Jesus the Messiah. When you see Jesus, you see life if you really take a look at him. Here's what he said in John 10.10. The thief comes only in order to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come so that they, meaning us, all of us, may have life, life in its fullest measure. And I love that because I just imagine it like um, when Valerie goes to Chipotle, she gets a a bowl usually. And uh, there was this time where she really loved cilantro. And I know cilantro is like a love it or hate it thing for people. She's on the love it side, like all the way, like as far as you can go. And so she would ask for more cilantro and they would kind of do a little sprinkle it on there and she said, no, I would like more. And so that would happen a couple times until finally they would get out their measuring cup and they would fill it up and they would dump it on there, right? That's life in the fullest measure. 
That's how Jesus loves us. That's how Jesus wants to express himself in our lives. Like taking just whole, whole cups full of love and dumping it on so that it's falling out of the bowl. And like, you, you, I mean, like you cannot contain it. And cilantro sticks to you, you know, right? Have you ever gotten cilantro? Like it sticks to your clothes. It's all over the place. You can't, like that's what this love that Jesus wants us to have, that he wants to dump into our lives in its fullest measure. Spicy. Jesus is declaring something so important here and we lose it because we're just in this other time and place and we've always had him and he's kind of always been there and Jesus loves me this I know like all that stuff is great but listen it's like my kingdom is happening people don't you understand this is on so like if you're here you haven't made that choice like you're not a part of his kingdom you haven't experienced that life Today's the day that you can make that a reality and it's a big deal, man. It's like whole cups full of cilantro that are dumped in your life and you're like, this is amazing. God changes everything. All he asks is that we humble ourselves and we make him king. He's already king. We're just acknowledging it. There are two kinds of people in this world, people that acknowledge who he is and people that try to ignore it. So for those of us today who consider ourselves believers, followers of Jesus, Christians, however you want to say that, we started out with the same story as these women. Maybe not exactly the same story, but we were a mess. We were ugly, we were dirty, we were covered in sin, we were far from God, we were trying to follow our own path, we were rebelling, and we had this opportunity, this moment where we could experience the love and the grace of Jesus for ourselves. And it wasn't this deal where he said, listen, here's a bar of soap, get it together, and then come back to church and we'll talk about it. No, he said, bring it in here. And he wrapped his arms around us. We were welcomed into this family of God and we became new creations, at least we were supposed to. We were supposed to be transformed. And I know, guys, it's a gradual process. There's a lot of speed bumps on this road that he wants to smooth out. But one of the things that can happen as time passes from the beginning of our walk with Jesus is we start to think we're pretty good people. We're like, you know... I mean, I know that I make mistakes, but I'm not bad, as bad as such and such. Have you seen what he's doing on Facebook? And then all of a sudden, being a part of God's community come, becomes about being good people. Being put together. Wearing my tie and... And when we're the good people, it's easy to point out all the things that we see that are wrong in the lives of other people. And so we love soaking up the grace and the mercy of God, right? Hallelujah, grace like rain falls down on me. Like we're all about it. But we're not extending it to the other people that need it. Just like we do. And here's the thing, guys. We start out as those women, but we end up becoming the religious leaders in the story. And listen, there are churches full of Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes right now. That's not how the kingdom is supposed to work. 
Would you guys bow your hearts with me? I want you to close your eyes and I'm gonna ask you just a couple of questions and then we'll go. I want you to think about your day-to-day life for just a minute. You may be a student, go to school. You may uh, have a job that you work at. You may have the privilege of staying home with your kidlets. You may be retired. But I want you to think about your life for a minute. Who in your life do you avoid? And even as I say that and ask you that question, for most of you guys, there's probably somebody that comes to mind. Who do you avoid? Let me ask you this question. Who do you despise? Like, well, Pastor Bill, I don't hate anyone. We're not allowed to do that. Listen. If we were to open up your life and read it like a book, if you were to open up my life and read it like a book, I guarantee you, there's somebody in your story and in my story that we don't like. How about this one? When you think about the worst of the worst of humanity, the people that you feel like don't deserve anything, who comes to mind? Who do you avoid? Who do you despise? And who comes to mind when you think of the worst of the worst? Jesus loves each and every one of those people. And Jesus wants to forgive them and be their king too. Being a follower of Jesus means that he is our king and that he sits on the throne of our lives and our hearts. And so what that means for us as believers is that we're submitting to this transformation, this gradual, this process, so that others will see his love and find its fullest measure in his kingdom. And just in case we've forgotten, what does Jesus' kingdom look like? It looks like prostitutes, drunkards, and drug dealers being forgiven. It looks like lepers and social outcasts being healed and restored to community. It looks like women and children being valued, protected, and empowered. It looks like people headed towards death coming to life when they encounter Jesus. And the thing that makes this possible, guys, is when we're loving God and loving one another together. Do people see us living life to its fullest measure? Do people see Jesus in the way that we act, in the way that we treat other people, and in the way that we speak about other people? Father God, it's so easy for us, and I'll just speak for myself, God, it's so easy for me to get caught up in trying to be good that I don't embrace your greatness. God, you know that all too well we carry the weight 
of a lot of responsibilities, but we also carry the weight of words that have been spoken over us that were negative or wrong. We carry the weight of the mistakes that we've made, God. And even though we know that we're forgiven when we ask you for that, we still lug all of that baggage around. And then, God, what we tend to do is open it up and point out the things that we see inside in the lives of other people. Father, I know that you want so much more for us than that, that if this world's going to be changed and transformed, you have to get a hold of our hearts first. I thank you that you're a loving God and that you're a God that offers second and third and fourth and 15th and 72nd chances and on and on and on. That your love is endless, that it lasts forever, that it is infinite and that no matter how long we live or where we go, we will never outlast your love. So God, I pray that you dump that love in its fullest measure into each of our hearts. If we're here today and this is the first time we've ever heard about you, I just pray that we'd be like that first woman whose life was so changed by the experience of meeting you that come and see, come and see. And for those of us, God, that maybe have known you for a while, but have forgotten what it's like to be desperate for you, I just pray that you would dump that love in our hearts too so that it would spill over and out. We can never sing enough how holy, amazing, awesome, great you are but we're going to try we love you and we pray that your worship would be expressed in every part of our lives we thank you for the opportunity that you've given each of us to come to you and we pray that you put us in places where we can help others do the same thank you and thank you for Jesus and all these things are in his name Amen.